Are you looking to learn more about investing in the central Indiana real estate market? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty, where we discuss all things related to investing in the central Indiana real estate market. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty. I'm your host, Jeremy Tallman with TNH Realty. We are a residential property management company that services the central Indiana market. Our topic today is the five profit centers in real estate. And because of that topic, I thought it made sense to bring on our very own Devin Hicks from our brokerage group to discuss this topic. Welcome to the show, Devin. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Devin, tell everyone about your background, kind of your role here, and I guess your day to day. Yeah. So uh, I actually come from a marketing background. I started with TNH Realty almost five years ago. Now they uh, brought me on to uh, do social media, blogging, content, uh, web design, just really kind of get that going for the company. And as I started doing research and really had to do deep dives into property management and real estate and investing, I just got very interested in, in that aspect of it. So I got my license and started helping out with um, helping investors purchase and sell properties uh, within the company. And um, yeah, so now I, I've been in this role full-time for probably about a year and a half. So on a daily basis, I'm talking with investors. I do a lot of, you know, phone calls, educating, seeing if we're a good fit. And then, you know, the investors that decide to work with us, I'm out there looking at properties day in and day out, trying to find good investments and getting investors to the closing table. And then I also help investors sell their properties when the time comes. Right. Yeah. You've been in this role, I think as our, as our lead agent for just over a year. And from where I sit, I think our brokerage is in the best position it's ever been in. I think you've done a great job just to give you a little shout out there, but, and your job's tough. I mean, we know this market, it's no surprise. This market's tough to buy in. It's easy to sell in. And, you know, for investors that want to add to their portfolios, it can be a lot of work. I think we all cheer when we get one under contract because it's, there's a lot that goes into that. So, you know, as we mentioned, this is our very first podcast, Devin. I know you're a big consumer of podcasts. I love podcasts. I listen to them a lot. And we've talked about doing this podcast for quite a while because it really, I think, is a is a natural extension to one of our main core values here, uh, which is to continually educate and advise. That's one of our core values, to continually educate and advise our clients, our residents, each other. You know, we do a lot of blogging because of that, blog every week. And uh, we have hundreds of blogs out there about anything you could think about in real estate. So we again, we thought this was just a natural extension to educate and advise investors in central Indiana. So we're going to talk all things central Indiana residential real estate. We're going to talk numbers in every show. We think numbers that matter to the central Indiana landlord and investors, you know, concerning property values, rent rates, things like that. And we're going to, you know, at the end of the day, discuss topics that we think the central Indiana landlord will find value because that's what we want to provide is education and value to those central Indiana landlords. So before we get into our topic today, let's stay true to what we just said and let's let's jump into some numbers, Devin. So there's two or three things we wanna talk about here. The first is a article that appeared in 
the Indianapolis Star. That's our main daily newspaper here. I think it's our only <laughs> daily newspaper at this point. But there was a story on June 8th that really talked about, are we on a housing bubble? And do you kind of want to go over, I guess, just the overview of that story, Devin? Just kind of give me your take on what they specifically said. Yeah. So, you know, the article basically just kind of talked about how home prices are are surging. Um, I think the number they had in there was they're 41% higher than expected. Rents are up uh, 9% higher than where they should be, quote mm-hmm. unquote. And rents in Indianapolis rose 14% last year, which made us the 51st highest year-on-year rent increase in the country. I, I think the biggest takeaway from the article is they're really not predicting a housing crash like we had in 07, 08. It's a bit of a different situation because of the lack of inventory. This is a different situation than than the first time around. So that was really kind of, I think, the biggest takeaway, you know, in spite of these kind of crazy surges in, in these numbers, the, a crash is not really what, what they're predicting. Right. Because, you know, I was very much a part of the real estate industry in 2007 and 2008. My, you know, Scott Hallberg, my business partner and I, we were buying properties. Um, we owned a lot of rentals at that point. We were doing share of sales every month and it was a really different market. You're right. And I, I agree with the star here. You know, they indicate that again, house prices are 41% higher than what they expected. So they have modeling basically. And they cited some Zillow modeling that said, you know, every year Indianapolis should increase at this rate. And so turns out we're 41% higher than that, that rate. So that feels like we're on a bubble. That feels like, yeah, there's, there's some room here to, to pop and and we could lose values, but I will say, and I've been pretty consistent in this. I think a lot of people are consistent with what they think here is that in 2007, 2008, there were some fundamental issues going on. And, And from the real estate perspective, it was a lot of bad loans that had happened. So that accompanied with, you know, a stock market crash and overall uh, just a confluence of issues caused a big drop in the housing market. Now we didn't, in Indianapolis, we didn't face those huge drops like a lot of the places throughout the country that saw, you know, just horrible, horrible foreclosure rates. We saw a lot of foreclosures. There were, there were a lot of foreclosures going on. Um, Sheriff sales got very big in those days. But it's different now because it's simply a lack of inventory. You know, we we are starved for inventory. There's a lack of affordable rental homes. There's a lack of, of rental homes in general. It's just hard for anybody right now to buy a home and rent a home. So even though prices are going up, we don't think, at least I don't think that we're in for a crash like we were in 2007, 2008. Will the market retract a little bit? I mean, probably but I don't think we're going to see that crash that we saw back then. So moving on, second thing is we we are members, Devin, of MIBOR, which stands for the Metropolitan Indianapolis Board of Realtors. And every month, they send out kind of a snapshot of a year-over-year comparison to that month. So this week, we got the year-over-year comparison for May. So give us a recap of that, if you would. Yeah, so... In May, this is year over year, so May to May, uh, the median sales price in central Indiana went to $287,625, and that is a 12.8% increase from May 2021. And 
you know, we've seen pretty big jumps year over year. April was 15.5%. March was 17.3%. February was 13.6%. And January was 16.9%. So a uh, little fluctuations there, but still, you know, pretty, pretty big jumps for our market anyway. Right. That's the key. It's our market, right? Because Indianapolis has always been that steady market where we kind of tracked inflation. And so people like that stability, but all of a sudden we become an appreciation market. And like every, every, I think every market in the country has, but what I see here is I see a slowing a little bit, even though you say, you know, if you'd have told me three years ago that you could see a 12.8% increase year over year, that would, I would say there's no way, you know, Indianapolis doesn't see that. The median sales price, like you mentioned in central Indiana is now getting close to $300,000. And people listening across the country may go, wow, that's affordable. I would love if that was the median sales price here in Los Angeles or here in Denver or, you know, just different places where our clients and our, our investors are. But that's still a big increase for Indianapolis. But at the same time, like you mentioned, there was in March, it was 17.3%. In April, it was 15.5%. So it is going down a little bit. And I suspect that number will continue to go down as we as we progress on throughout the year. Okay. So again, we're increasing quite a bit, but at the same time, I think you're seeing a little bit of softening in the market. Um, and I'll be very curious to see as these numbers roll out throughout the year. So Devin, you also want to talk about something that Rosie Birdsney and our and our brokerage as well. You two work together all the time and, and talk all the time. And one of the things you guys look at every morning is number of listings and pending. So you kind of give us an idea of what, what you're seeing there. Yeah. So almost every day without fail, the amount of new listings versus houses that go pending, the pendings are almost always double or close to it. So it's, you, it kind of tells you how, how my day is going to be and how much I'm going to have to go look at, um, typically, but yeah, that's been pretty steady, honestly, for as long as I can remember for the, this past year, I do think with, you know, as we kind of touched on seeing a, a bit of these, these numbers going down a little bit, I think we're kind of starting to see that flip a little bit too, to where the, the new listings are outweighing the pendings a little bit. So that's right. a good sign, at least for us on the buy side and for, you know, our investors that um, are looking for inventory to, right. to get bought. Yeah. Because if you have more pendings and listings, eventually you run out of inventory. Right. And yeah. so I think we'd set a record this month as well, or may rather that days on market here were 13. That actually seems high to me. Like 13 days on market sounded high. I was surprised that was a record because it seems like, well, and you know, it. any property that you want, you're, you're writing, you're competing, right? I mean, you're, you're competing against multiple people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, those are the numbers. Again, we want to recap that with you. We'll do that on each podcast just to give everyone kind of a snapshot of where we are. And before we dive too deep in today's topic, I just want to make it abundantly clear that we are not financial advisors. We're real estate brokers, we're property managers, and we provide this information uh, from an educational purposes only. Um, we're going to give you our opinions. I think we, Devin, we both have opinions on uh, where we are at the market and, and some of these return measures, but we encourage everyone out there to do their own research, consult your financial advisor, consult your CPA, um, 
So we just want to make that disclosure before we dove too deep. So Devin, I want to go out on a limb here as we get into our topic and suggest that you likely speak with as many investors and inter- at least interested in Central Indiana than anyone. I mean, you talk to a lot of people. I'm assuming that's correct. Yeah, that, that's not a stretch. Right. So you're out looking at homes all day long. I know you have a company car and I think you have the highest gas bill of any employee we have. We have a bunch of company cars. I mean, I, if you drive around Indianapolis, it's likely you've seen one and we've, and so you, you put a lot of miles on that car looking for properties. And when you're talking with these investors and you present them with a property and I'm assuming you'll present them with a rent rate um, to say, hey, this property is listed for 150. We think we can get 1200 in rent, things like you provide them some basic, and then you may give them a number of, you know, we think generally speaking, this house may need X amount of dollars with a very loose definition there, because we're not home inspectors. We're seeing properties very superficially at, at, at this at this point when you're trying to write an offer. What are people focused on? Like what, what return measures are they typically most interested in here in central Indiana? Definitely the majority of investors that I speak with, they are, they want the cash flow. They, you know, that's the most important for sure. They want to make money every month and, you know, and that's the goal. So definitely cash flow would be kind of the, the biggest metric that's that investors are, are looking at when they're running numbers and we're, we're analyzing deals. Right. Because, you know, and I get that. I mean, cash flow is important and, and Indianapolis has, been that classic cash flow market for years. When investors first started coming in here years ago, I remember saying that, or I remember hearing rather that it's like, wow, you know, prices are so cheap in Indianapolis. And this 1% rule is so easy to attain, simple to attain, even with really nice properties. But as more institutional investors arrive and they're buying homes at a good rate and prices go up, and rents, even though they went up as well, they haven't kept pace with the pricing. We're starting to see that cash flow become pressured. Like it's harder, it's almost impossible, I'll say, to get that 1% rule in areas that, I'll say, you know, in Indianapolis, let's say, in areas that are, are good areas, good school systems, good long-term plays. So I think this topic is really relevant today for the Indianapolis investor, because it's it's important. And, and maybe some people do. I, I know some people do not, though, because I've had conversations with people that don't consider other profit centers in real estate. But there's a lot more to rental real estate than just cash flow. It's important, but there's a lot of other areas and that I would argue are more important for people that are, that are investing to look at than, than cash flow. So again, we thought this topic made sense because cash flow has been such a dominant part of how people look at the Indianapolis market. And we want to spend a few minutes going over the other areas of, of rental real estate because it's really competitive out there. So to kind of set the stage, again, there's five profit centers. This is some, not something that we made up. It's something that's out, been out there a while, but it is real estate offers five profit centers. And it's different than some businesses where there may just be one profit center, like the classic lemonade stand, for example, they, you know, if you have a lemonade stand, you you make what you sell. There's no other ancillary fees there. It's 
that's that's what you make. But, but real estate's not like that. So let's jump into these one by one. We'll start with the first one, which we've been talking about a lot so far, but let's go into the definition and, and some examples of cash flow. Cash flow is our number one profit center here. And Devin, go ahead and talk about cash flow and what that means and how, how it's defined. Yeah. So cash flow, you know, at the very basic level, it's it's basically the amount of money that you're going to make after all of your expenses are paid. So basically your your take home pay after, you know, everything, maintenance, property management fees, mortgage, insurance, all of that good stuff. Yeah. One, you know, you're just pretty much subtracting your expenses from from your profit. And then yeah, that's what you're taking home. Right. And there's all kinds of models out there for cash flow. I think we have one. I think you, you know, a lot of investors you work with will have their own. They got it from bigger pockets or another investor or whatever. There's all kinds of ways to calculate cash flow. And I think it's important when when you're looking at cash flow is that it's a prediction. You know, a cash flow is what, what they call a pro forma. Like, what do you expect this property to make? And you can pump in all kinds of numbers. You can obviously pump in a rent rate that if you use a property manager, should be able to give you a really good range, uh, a tight range, I would assume, on rent rates. If you know, if you got your mortgage in line, you kind of know what your interest rate's going to be. You know what your monthly payment will be. You can predict your taxes to a certain extent. Taxes are raising because valuations are raising. It's also really important from a tax standpoint to understand that if that homestead exemptions on the property here, when you buy it, then it's going to go away and taxes can increase. So make sure you consult your realtor about that. And insurance you're going to know and things like that. One of the things I think people don't do a good job when they when they do their performance is really measuring vacancy and then maintenance. You know, you see some cash flow models with, you know, expect five or 10% maintenance. Yeah, that could happen. It probably won't. And as you buy older homes, it won't happen consistently. You're going to be paying a lot more than 5 or 10% in maintenance. So again, it's important to realize that cash flows are pro forma as their predictions. Devin, today, what is a really good cash flow number? Like what, what's, I'm sure you've done some analysis even this week. Um, what are you seeing that people are riding on from a cash flow standpoint in Indianapolis? To be honest, as of late, I would say on average, it's break even to maybe a hundred and $150 a month. So if I, if you had a property that on paper cash on a pro forma cash flowed at 300 a month, that's what 25, 30 offers on it. Yeah. We would be jumping on that for sure. Right. So let's just use that as a, as a quick example. So let's say it's $300 a month. And that's $3,600 a year. Okay, so your performer would show you're going to make $3,600 a year in cash flow. The issue becomes when your air conditioner breaks. And we're going through a particularly hot period right now here in Indianapolis. We're seeing 90, almost 100 degree weather, high humidity. Our phones are lighting up with, with down ACs or ACs in, our, in the resident's opinion performing well. So and we've had some ACs that it just died, right? And it didn't start up this spring. That's going to be more than your $3,600 of cash flow. So that one instance is going to erase all the cash flow in an entire year. And it's not a matter of if that's going to happen. If you do this long enough, it will happen. You will have years if you have one property where you have negative cash flow. It's just a reality of owning 
that rental real estate. So we'll spend a lot more time on this. We, I think people understand cash flow. I just want to throw in my two cents there as an investor myself that cash flow is important. You know, when you set yourself up, especially if you're a, if you're a new investor, to be in a negative cash flow situation all the time, it can be a demoralizing feeling. So it, it is important, I think, you know, at least at the outset to try to achieve a, a break-even or a positive cash flow. But again, that's just one area of this. So let's let's jump to number two, Devin, and that is the number two profit center is tax savings. So, Devin, talk about tax savings that that investors get as a result of owning rental real estate. Yeah. So I am by no means a tax expert. I will lead with that. But but you know, there are a lot of great tax benefits for investors and owning rental real estate. There's things you can write off. There's, you know, things that depreciate on the home itself. So there's a lot of ways. And, you know, if you have a good CPA that knows rental real estate, I think they can really help you maximize some of these tax benefits and write-offs that can really save you a lot of money and help improve, you know, your profit center. Right. Yeah. I think this is an overlooked profit center. I think, you know, I didn't really consider it, to be honest, when we first started investing 21 years ago now, but it's a huge deal. And as you accumulate properties, you will see tremendous tax benefits. And again, you mentioned it earlier, Devin, it's imperative. Don't try to do this yourselves, unless you have a financial background or CPA, then by all means, but get yourself a good CPA, make sure your CPA does tax returns for other landlords and is very up to speed with all the write-offs that are available. And then that depreciation, that's that's a huge part of this as well, because real estate depreciated straight line depreciation over 27 and a half years. So every year you're going to get a nice write-off uh, from your rent to real estate. I would say, and I think people listening to this that don't invest may be shocked to hear this, but people who do invest will probably say, yeah, that's totally the case. I think it's impossible to make money from a tax standpoint when you own rental real estate. And people might say, well, that's horrible. No, that's actually good for your tax return. Because even if you cash flow well, let's say you have that year where you get that 3,600, everything goes great, you get that 3,600, you're probably going to break even or lose money when you factor in your depreciation that's involved with that rental real estate. So Again, it's a huge, huge deal. It will save you on your taxes. And again, this isn't cash. This is tax savings. There's something there's it's that's different. Um, and again, be smart, do what you do well, but get that CPA in line and, and make sure they do run your depreciation schedules and and advise you on what you can write off. And, and some people get pretty creative on what they, they choose to write off or or throw toward their rental business. Um, but be smart about it. Don't don't make yourself an audit candidate. Um, and again, get that CPA involved. That's profit center number two. It's a great profit center. Those tax savings are. Let's move on to number three, which is principal pay down. Devin, talk about that. Yeah. So this is yeah another great aspect. You know, if you're buying a property with financing, basically the rent your tenant is paying every month is paying that principal mortgage payment down for you. So obviously the the more you pay that down, the bigger your profit gets. So, you know, the lower your debt gets, the more money you're going to make. So, and that's coming, you know, straight from your tenants that is paying that down for you. So. Yeah, it does. It does assume you have a mortgage, which 
I, I love mortgages. I mean, I, I love them and they provide so much leverage. You know, I, I understand the reason why some people may want to pay cash for a property, but at the same time, you know, if you spend a hundred thousand dollars on a property and you have one property, you can say you pay cash for it. Well, you could theoretically buy five properties for that and have that leverage that gives you so much more from a balance sheet standpoint, you know, assets and, and personal wealth potential down the road. And yeah, principal pay down is a wonderful thing. You know, Scott and I have had some tenants. We've been fortunate enough to have some tenants in our properties for as long as we've owned them. Uh, we have some tenants that have been there and I may be a little wrong about this, but I want to guess about 18 years. And so they've essentially paid off our house for us, which is kind of crazy to think about, but it is a, a great tool. It's something that you will see the benefit of. Um, if you are like us, we have provide for personal financial statements um, each year. And as you look at what you owe on those properties, it may not go down a whole lot in those first few years when you're paying more interest than, than principal. But eventually you hit that threshold, that inflection point where you're paying more principal down than interest. And that mortgage rate just starts, those mortgages start to really, really dwindle. And it's again, it's it's a it's that long-term approach, which we preach here at TNH to to real estate, is it's got to be a long-term approach to think you could own a real estate or a piece of property for two or three years and and you know do really, really well with it. That's not normal. It's 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 a long-term play. So principal pay down is a is a huge profit center. And it's something that is fun to watch, frankly, as an investor as that as that mortgage balance goes down. The other piece of this, Devin. Uh, it's uh, profit center number four is appreciation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as your property goes down, hope your value, your, your mortgage goes down, rather you hope your property goes up. So talk mm -hmm. a little bit about, about appreciation. Yeah, this is another big one. I would say besides cash flow, this is probably the other profit center that I speak with investors the most about. And, and a lot of people do care about appreciation. And I think a big part of owning real estate, you know, that's the goal. So you, you are hoping that over time, the value of your property is going to increase. And I think real estate is kind of unique in that because you don't get that from a car. You don't get that from jewelry. You know, there's very few, if anything, that really goes up in value and, and real estate is kind of that, you know, stable investment that has proven over time that, you know, it will increase in value. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I think you're, I think you're, you're smart to talk about this. And, and Indianapolis is, again, we've talked about this in this podcast. It's not historically that big appreciation market. It has been the last few years have been that market. And it's interesting when I talk to clients and they will call me and say, hey, Jeremy, you know, this last three years has been a disaster. I had to put a new AC in. Um, I had a roof that I had to replace, you know, whatever. They've had a confluence of issues that have been devastating from a cash flow standpoint. And so they've, again, they look at cash flow and they say, you know, I've lost money on this property. And I said, well, let's talk about that a minute. And I can go in and look at what they paid for it if they bought it on the MLS. And every single time it's significantly less than what it's worth today. So I can say, hey, look, investor, I know you've had negative cash flow in these last three years. You've had more out of pocket than in your pocket, but you paid 125,000 for this property five years ago. It's worth 
200,000 today. Was that a good investment for you? And the answer is always yes. <laughs> it's, I'll say this, and you can't say this about any time in our history here in Indianapolis, but anybody who bought property in the last five years, you are almost, it was hard to make a mistake, I'll say, right? I mean, you could have overpaid for a property probably a lot five years ago and be looking really good today. And will that continue? I don't know. I'm not a, you know, I'm not an economist. We kind of know what we're looking at in terms of our appreciation today. But the bottom line is appreciation has generated a whole lot of wealth in this country and this city for, for real estate investors. And I'll say this, in defense of a principal pay down and appreciation, kind of that combination. If you Because if you look at principal pay down and appreciation, that's essentially equity, right? You're gaining equity through principal pay down and appreciation. In real estate, again, if you look at it from a long-term standpoint, as a wealth building exercise, this is how you get wealthy in real estate. It's not from cash flow. You don't get wealthy on that $3,600 a year. You get wealthy on that principal pay down and that appreciation. And if you can multiply that by having 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 properties, you get exponentially wealthier. That's where the wealth building happens. That's where the magic happens in real estate is that time-tested, proven of principal pay down and appreciation, which equals equity. That's how you get wealthy in real estate and not through cash flow. I was, it was funny, you know, I, when we first started investing, I used to have all these models. Scott and I would work on these models and say, well, we bought this property and it's cash flowing X. We buy this property, it's going to cash flow Y. And if we can get 10 properties or 15 properties, we can quit our jobs. We can just manage these 10, 15 properties and live a good life. That doesn't happen. I mean, that, that, that plan quickly, we, we realize that it doesn't work that way. But now we're looking at the properties we bought 20 years ago and, and feel really good about where we are because of that long-term long -term mentality that we adopted. So, okay, moving on. The, the last one, Devin, number five, is inflation hedging. Talk about that. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting one. And I think it's really become more top of mind recently with mm -hmm. everything kind of going on in the economy and inflation hitting, you know, record rates and, and things like that. So really what I think this is, is touching on is basically putting your money somewhere where it's, where it's going to hold its value. You know, I, I talk with investors semi-frequently and, and I hear a lot, I just have money sitting in, in a bank account and, you know, it's losing value I, or I have money sitting here and it's losing value. So I think for, for, you know, these purposes, it's, it's figuring out, you know, can real estate, can putting your money in, in real estate, you know, save your dollar, pretty much save the value right. of your dollar and, and stretch it further. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you say, you know, if I took out a mortgage in 2005, let's say, and you did a 20 year fixed rate, and let's say your mortgage payment was $750 back in 2005. Well, that's $750 is a lot cheaper today than it was back in 2005. So you're hedging against that inflation. It's e it's it's easier for you to make that payment, or it should be, 
than it was in 2005. So that's hedging that inflation that's inevitable in any market. We're seeing this at grand scale, Devin, in, in the in, in Wall Street, where these huge bondholders have shifted their money from bonds into real estate because they're literally losing money on bonds right now. Their bonds aren't keeping up with inflation. So you're seeing this money, and we're not talking millions, we're talking billions of dollars that these funds are putting into rental real estate. And they're just telling people, go out and write offers, pay what you need to pay for them. I'm sure they have models and I'm sure they have caps. It's not a you know an endless supply there. But it's like, we want to invest a billion dollars or $2 billion in rental real estate across these X amount of markets. Mm-hmm. And so you're competing against them, right, Devin? You're competing against those corporate REITs every day because yeah. they're trying to they're trying to hedge against this inflation that they're seeing and put their money in real estate. So you're right. It's a really relevant topic today. Um, and we're seeing it at grand scale. We're seeing these really smart people shift their money from bonds into, into rental real estate. So, okay, those are the five topics. So I want to kind of end, Devin, on a question because you mentioned it a little bit at the top and I want to kind of circle back to it. Is it okay for investors to break even or have even negative cash flow when buying? Are you, are you, are you seeing your buyers make that leap? Where it's like, I know I may lose a little bit of money, but I, I think it's a good investment. I want to buy it. Yes, it's few and far between. Uh, you know, obviously, nobody wants to go into an investment knowing they're going to lose money right off the bat. But I will say, I have worked with a few investors at this point where, you know, we, we run numbers, we're, we're analyzing a deal, and, you know, it might have negative cash flow year one, but by year two, it's going to be break even and you know it's it's up from there so there you know there are investors out there who i think have maybe kind of realigned their expectations and their their goals and have realized you know there are other benefits to to a certain investment to a certain property besides cash flow so they they have made that leap and they are willing to to kind of pull the trigger even though they know it's not going to perform super well cash flow wise right off the bat yeah, that's interesting. And I don't think we'd have seen that a few years ago. I mean, I, you probably didn't. I mean, this is, I'm assuming this is a more of a recent phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think you're right. I think there's, and we we wrote a blog about this. I think there's, a, you know, three, and I'm sure there's more. I came up with three different reasons why someone may choose to buy a property with break-even or negative cash flow. The first one is, I think, it's their personal cash situation we preach heavily that you need to have at least three months of rent in reserve at all times to pay for unexpected expenses. It's called a, you can call it a SWAN account, a sweep, a sleep well at night account, whatever it might be the case. But if you have discretionary income each month, if you have savings to pay for unexpected ex- expenses, then it could make sense for you to buy that property even if it's a negative or break-even cash flow situation, because you see, you may see something in that property that you like. Like you said, Devin, maybe it's, um, you know, they know in year two or year three they may start making money from a cash flow standpoint. But again, I think the personal cash situation is important. The second one I would argue is your overall real estate holding. Scott and I 
definitely considered stuff like this as our portfolio grew is if we identified a property that we wanted to buy and pick up and keep and put it into our rental inventory, so to speak, as we got more and more properties, cash flow became less and less of a consideration. Because if we really liked a property, really liked the upside of it or whatever it is, then we said, well, hey, we're, we're okay with a break-even or very little cash flow because we have other properties around it that can support it, so to speak. It's the power of numbers. And so if you have seven or eight properties that are cash flowing really well, you can afford to pick up another one, even if it's break-even cash flow, because it's not going to you know, overall affect you that, that, that much. The third issue is that I mentioned it earlier is that the property has upside. So if you buy a property that you say there's this property is in distress because we know what we see it all the time. Landlords can be lazy. They can defer maintenance. They can not raise rent because they're afraid they're going to lose a tenant. So you got a property that, you know, is just fundamentally worth less because there's deferred maintenance. It's outdated. It's got a tenant in there who's paying way under market rent. And so an investor may say, yeah, with this lease I have with this tenant that I'm inheriting, which in Indiana, you honor those leases, as long as that lease is in effect, even if you sell it or buy it, you're you're bound to be maintaining and, and honoring the terms of that lease. They see the upside. They say, hey, if I can make this improvement, if I can you know, add that second bath here, if I can put central air in, I can, you know, whatever it is uh, to make the property more valuable. And at the same time, increase my rents. I have a really nice cash flowing property, but it may take me a bit to get there, right? I mean, I can't just, like I said, go in and just raise rents immediately on a tenant that has an effective lease. Um, there, there's processes that you have to follow there. So again, I think it, it makes sense to buy a property that's on paper, the way it sits now is negative cash flow, but you see that upside and you know you gain equity, you get cash flow. It's kind of a win-win for you as you, as you complete that purchase. So that's it, Devin. Hey, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining me, Devin. If you want to get in touch with Devin, you can simply go to our website, fill out a form. You can call us. You can hit us up on social, whatever. We're easy to reach. Devin is happy to, to speak with you. Uh, but again, Devin, thanks for joining me. It's been great. I, I feel very honored to have been the first guest on the first TNH podcast. So I'm excited to see what, what you guys do next. Yeah, we you are a very worthy first guest. You're a you're a, definitely a star in our company. So well, anyway, Devin, again, this has been great. We hope everyone's picked up a tidbit or two that'll help them in their investing. Um, we'll be back next month with another podcast. In the meantime, we encourage you to share this podcast with your investing friends here in central Indiana. Leave us a review. And as always, don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions at all. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and please stay invested in your investment.